Hello everyone, this is Conservation Voices for the Primate Cast. I'm Cecile Sarabian. The release date for today's podcast is March 29th, 2016. During the fifth International Symposium on Primatology and Wildlife Science here in Inuyama, Japan, I had the opportunity to meet with a very special person, Raymond Lombuenamon. Raymond comes from one of the richest countries in the world, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. With a charism and an overall view of conservation in the country, Raymond shares with us his experience as a conservationist, economist, and geographic information system expert. I'm a, a former director of uh, WWF uh, in DR Congo from uh, uh, 2005 until 2015. I'm currently working as a professor at the UNESCO School of uh, Integrated Management of Forests and uh, Land in, at the University of Kinshasa. And uh, I also work, still work as a consultant for WWF in DRC. And that's one of the reason, uh, reasons that brought me here, because I'm collaborating with the, uh, the University of Kyoto in setting up uh, a program on uh, Malibu, in Malibu, uh, for ecotourism based on uh, bonobo in the wild. So um, what is this project about? The project is about um, following up after a, years, a, two, a few years of habituation of bonobos um, and putting in place a program that will help establish um, a conservation system by local communities um, based on, um, on people visiting the bonobo in the wild instead of in the sanctuary or in the zoo and uh, having the communities run the process instead of having a company or the government itself running it. This is the basis of the, the uh, initiative that is being um, put in place slowly by uh, our team, WWF Kinshasa and um, University of Kinshasa and University of Kyoto. This is what we are trying to do. And I'm, my background is not conservation per se. I was uh, trained in plant Plant, uh, plant science, and be, after I got my uh, degree in plant science, I went to the States uh, to study uh, soil and water sciences, and from there I developed a uh, taste for uh, remote sensing, and I went on to get a PhD in uh, remote sensing, of in interdisciplinary remote sensing at the University of Arizona and then came back to, uh, to uh, uh, DR Congo, worked for a long time, quite about five years with USAID as uh, an expert, local expert, in charge of natural resource management and uh, monitoring of uh, forest cover. From there, I moved on to, uh, to WWF and uh, until last year, Now I'm somewhat a freelance 
although I'm still teaching, I work as a consultant for many, many other people. And my uh, area of interest, of course, is fragmentation of the forest as an habitat and um, change uh, in land use and uh, land, land use planning, but also and land management as a broader, broader subject. Um, this is what brought me uh, here, actually. Mm-hmm. So you just you gave a talk uh, about yeah, habitat fragmentation and community effective involvement. Which role um, oil companies and other companies looking, for example, for rare metals like cotton play in the habitat fragmentation? Do you have any facts on that? Yeah. Um I should say that um, in the DRC, uh, let's go back to uh, the beginning, I should say. Um, forest fragmentation in DRC has two main causes. The first is shifting cultivation by population. But as as uh, I told you the other day, uh, 70% of the population is, are rural dwellers, and these people depend almost completely on natural resources for everything, livelihoods, and everything you can think of. Um, in so doing, they are bound to use part of the forest for their subsistence. And since they rely on the forest to uh, renew the fertility of their soil, they can only go on nibbling little by little the forest, but in so doing it takes not so much uh, not so long because as they uh, the um, fertility rate I would say the population increase in DRC is about 3.2% which means every generation the population doubles that means we are 70 million today in 25 years we will be 140 million which means double the amount of forest that is being nibbled every year. We are at the moment at 0.26%, but in 40 years' time, if nothing is, is done, the 164 million for, uh, hectare of forest that, uh, that are in the DRC will disappear completely as such. So this is the first uh, problem we face in DRC. The second problem, I would say, is is the fact that the energy that is used by 80% of the population is drawn from dendro energy, which is wood or charcoal. And uh, this is not sustainable in the long term. The third, I would say, is logging. And logging is done not necessarily by uh, industrial company, commercial companies, also by them, but the most important part, um, I, I would say, Three or four times more is done by logging by uh, three, four, five people getting together, going around the forest and cutting down the trees and making planks. And this is uh, illegal logging. Uh, as I said, uh, if uh, commercial logging is is uh, extracting about 30, 30, 300,000 cubic meters of uh, wood every year, uh, Illegal loggers are doing three or, or four times more. 
And this is the third biggest problem that we face. Now, um, as you know, the DRC is full of minerals. Um, some of those are found in the forest, but most of the, those that are currently being exploited are not in the forest. They are down south in the Katanga, which is more a Miyomo region than a uh, dense forest region. However, uh, more and more, you have diamond in, in, in uh, discovering diamond in the, in the forest, but also in the eastern part, especially uh, around the, um, the Ituri area, uh, you, you have gold, and gold in, is in the forest. So uh, again, it's not necessarily industrial mining, but uh, artisanal mining that is causing the most uh, important, um, uh, would I say, uh, impact on uh, forest cover. Uh, mining will be big time, I'm sure, because if the oil that is hinted to exist in uh, Salonga, for instance, is exploited, then that is going to be a big deal because Salonga, if there is a forest that is pristine in GRC, it, it, it is in Salonga. Um, we also already have problems with uh, uh, oil uh, because, as you, you remember, uh, Rage personally was very much engaged in uh, combating Soko to uh, exploit oil in the Virunga. So this was about two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. In Virunga, uh, where because people found oil across the border in, in Uganda, they thought that still there, there must be oil, which is more likely so. So they started uh, testing and... Uh, and uh, How could they get the permit to, to do that in a UNESCO World Heritage Site? Why, it's, it's, not, it's not that difficult because you go around bribing whomever you want once you have uh, given bribe to uh, corrupt uh, officials, you get permits um, wh whenever you want to, even if the president may, may not be um, aware. aware of how these permits were obtained. And uh, he signs the paper because his uh, advisor have said so. So he signs the paper without knowing uh, what behind all this, but that's the way it works. So. And uh, they ended up with uh, problems, and we raised hell. We talked it. I went to uh, uh, Britain. I went to the Foreign Office. I went to uh, the Parliament. I talked to the. Um, I even WWF even bought um, shares of Soko to be present at the uh, General Assembly for Soko, so that they can have a voice. So we did that. I attended to the uh, General Assembly. Uh, we had. To say what we, we said, and uh, we also met with all the officials there. We uh, voiced our, our uh, disappointment and also our disapproval of the action they are taking in Virunga. And what was the main outcome? And actually, culminated by us going to OCDE, if you. Um, uh, against the uh, Soko, and then uh, they were told to engage, uh, to commit not to continue uh, their work in Virunga. That's what they did uh, last year, they pulled out. But, but in so doing, I'm not so sure that they pulled out for, for good. Even if they have pulled out, they could have sold their rights to somebody else. 
And if those are not bound, as, as SOCO is, by uh, international bodies to uh, regulate whatever they're doing, then this can be really, really bad for Virunga. It's still pending. We don't know what's going to happen, but uh, we hope that uh, they will understand that Virunga is much better sold as a touristic uh, destination than uh, an oil field. So that's what I, I think shall be done. Sure. I remember that it was a pretty uh, big issue, even on all the international media. And I think um, I remember one documentary that was made, uh, Virunga, <laughs> by Orlando von Heindiesel, and this <laughs> raised global awareness. Um, I think even the, the team crew, uh, by the time, didn't necessarily want to focus on this issue, but once they got into the Virunga and they were in the middle of this conflict, so yeah. it completely changed the, the line or the direction of the, of the movie, and finally uh, they made a, a great documentary. Yep. That's one of the fights I thought I, uh, I enjoyed uh, getting involved in. And um, although people were hurt, some of the people got shot. I was lucky not to be shot. Uh, I did what I could, and I think uh, to this point we can say that it was a successful try, try and uh, we hope that this is going to hold until people are convinced that they cannot do what they're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Even the director of the park, I think, um, yeah. Emmanuel de Merod, de Merod got yeah. shot. He got um, shot, got four bullets. Yeah, but then he came back. Yeah, yeah, he's still he's, there, he's there standing. Yeah, I'm actually going to meet him uh, this month. Great. Yeah. So, how do you see the future? What um, perspectives or which project are you involved in, or you will continue to to be involved in? And Conservation DRC is just like in any other, uh, you know, in any other countries, but mostly we have to keep in mind that. We in DRC have an economy that is based on mining and extraction of natural resources. Whereas when you deal with countries like Uganda, uh, Tanzania, or Kenya, these countries have their economy based on tourism. So when you do conservation in Congo, you are actually going against the established interests. Where you do when you do conservation in Kenya, you are the ally of the government because the government wants you to to help them set up areas where people can come and flock and pay money for that. So this is a very important thing to remember. Now, um, the second thing is that the government is not, at, as we speak, not yet capable of controlling everything that's going on in the country, and. Uh, Uh, as such, uh, sometimes they're just not responsible for what happens, although they should have, should have been. And the third thing is the communities. Um, people are so poor. This is a very a, a big paradox because if there is a country in the world that is rich, natural, naturally speaking, it's the DRC. I don't see any other one that can really compete. But what we see there is really, you have to be very talented to turn this paradise into a hell. <laughs> but we did. I don't know how we did it, but we did. Now, uh, if you really want to uh, make a difference, you cannot do any other way but 
get community involved because if there is something that can be saved, it's there for them to save it, not against them. Otherwise, you you are doomed to fail for sure. So, first of all, you have to make sure that you um, you 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 gain buy-ins by them, but you also have to make sure that they have participation. This participation has to be uh, not necessarily an ownership, at least it has to be an appropriation of it. whatever activity you, you try to do. Make sure that there's an appropriation. That appropriation will perpetuate your, your, um, your activities. If you don't do that, then when you leave, the place is going to be so uh, wrecked that it would have been better that you didn't come at all. So this is this is my point. As after serving with WWF for ten years and uh, and uh, having been born there and grown up there, I know exactly what I, I think is important with these communities. Now the, the, the other thing is is you have to teach not only the communities but also um, all the actors in this uh, saga. And the actors are not only the communities, but also the uh, decision makers. And decision makers have to understand what are the, f the forces at play in the area. And what is the interest of the community, not only individuals, but most of them work for themselves instead of working for the community. And the third thing is also have to, um, to uh, educate uh, the big NGOs when they come to Congo uh, talking about conservation. This thing of barging and coming starts uh, with the slogan like no tree shall die, no tree shall die is a bullshit. This is not the way to do it because when you are faced with precarity, I keep saying this, there's no value, there's no vice. There's only one thing, is survival. And you cannot blame somebody who is trying to survive and the communities are trying to survive if you come and say don't do this you have to present them with an alternative thing that can help them do otherwise otherwise keep your mouth shut or back up and go this is one thing the second thing is um, um, on the other uh, uh, side of the spectrum of conservationists you have those people who tell you that, you know, uh, I'm a biologist. I don't care about livelihoods. I don't know the first thing about livelihoods. Then don't work in, in, in this area. Otherwise, you are just bothering people. All you have to do if you cannot do it, call somebody who does. Partner, make a partnership with these people and work together so that community have to find some benefits out of what you're trying to do. Only then you can claim that you are doing something. Otherwise, you may um, win some battles here, but you will lose the war in the end. That's what is conservation, as I see it, in the area. So once, once you have looked at all these, these things, uh, you come to understand that uh, um, tackling conservation on the basis of protected area, I think it has run its course. Uh, because then you have isolated patches of forest that can contain only so much, so many uh, group of species, especially those that don't have a, a wide range. But if you need 
a lasting impact on conservation. Then you have to integrate not only PAs, but larger areas, larger um, units of land that have working functionality of uh, uh, ecosystems and com uh, corridor that can communicate between patches so that you still have exchange of blood and genes between groups of, uh, of uh, mammals or whatever you have there and uh, conserve resilience of the, of the system against the border effect, for instance, against uh, disaster, be it man-made or natural disaster. All these kind of things need big, big chunk of forest. This deba debate has been uh, raging for, for years. Do we need single, uh, single uh, large patches, or do we need several small patches of forest to conserve? For me, it's what we need is not a single, but several large patches of forest. Or only then you can talk about conservation, because then we integrate all forces at work there. You consider not only biodiversity, but you also look into economic activities, agriculture, etc., etc., and you make sure that all this come into play and they will uh, equilibrate at, this, at a certain point so that, uh, so that the, um, the, uh, the ecosystem services are maintained, population are maintained, and people are, are having their livelihoods uh, taken care of, and then everybody's happy. Otherwise, bye-bye conservation. Well, I used to say conservation without livelihoods is conversation. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.ciasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.